Welcome to the Kanoi Church Podcast. We're glad that you're interested in connecting through this teaching time. If you'd like to connect further, feel free to reach out to us through our website, kanoichurch.org. For now, enjoy this teaching from Kanoi Church, where our mission is to lead people into a growing relationship with Jesus Christ. Well, good morning. We are entering into our teaching time, and we're still in our series on Abraham. And we're going to do our best to just, we're going to finish out this series because we're so far into it. Uh, If you've been following with us this whole time, this series is called Faithful, and it follows the life and the journey of Abraham. Last week, we read Genesis chapter 22, and in Genesis chapter 22, God called Abraham to sacrifice his son Isaac, which is Huge because Abraham was waiting and waiting and waiting for that son. So he calls Abraham to sacrifice his son, but in the last moment, in the final moments, God steps into the situations and says, Abraham, stop, don't do it. I'm not calling to that. God enters into the process of child sacrifice in order to end child sacrifice. The point is for him to abolish it. See, God has this habit of, of much like a missionary entering into situations in order to speak to the situation. And so God enters into the process of child sacrifice to end it for all time. It makes it clear that I am a God that does not require a child sacrifice, doesn't want or doesn't like it. And then we said the story of Isaac and this sacrifice, it really parallels the story of Jesus going to the cross where God once again enters into a sacrificial system in order to end and abolish it forever. And that is, that is the good news that we celebrated last week, is that that system is done. This morning, we're going to hear a little bit about a group of people called the Hittites. This is a group of people that have been connected to God's people for a very long time. So throughout the Old Testament, we see the Hittites come up. And uh, we're going to see them be welcoming and caring to Abraham this morning as a stranger, as a foreigner in the land. But throughout the history of God's people, they've been people who have entered in and actually supplied God's people with things like horses and chariots. And so we would say that the Hittites were actually an ally of God's people. And if we keep tracking with the history of God's people far enough, we see King David, one of his right-hand men, was named Uriah the Hittite. And so we would say they went from being strangers to us to becoming an ally to us to then becoming one of us, part of our kingdom. Long before Abraham, there was a man named Noah. Noah was called by God to build an ark because there was a massive flood coming. So Noah gathers animals with him. He gathers his family with him. They get on this ark and they ride out the storm. Noah had a few sons, Japheth, Shem, and Ham. Ham had a son named Canaan, and Canaan was the father of Heth. Heth His family became known as the Hethites or the Hittites. So the Hittites lived in the land of Canaan, founded by Heth's father. Abraham's descendants know this land, the land of Canaan, as the promised land. The land of Canaan is the land that God has promised to Abraham to be the place that his descendants will live. But right now, that promise has not come to fulfillment. Right now, Abraham is a stranger in the land. He's a foreigner in the land. But the people that live in the land are the Hittites. They live there, and they have ownership. 
So I tell you all about that so I can tell you two things. The first is, there's a very important part of the story this morning, and that is that Abraham becomes a deeded owner of land in Canaan. He's a deeded owner of the promised land. This is part of God's promise becoming fulfilled. He's no longer a foreigner. He is an owner in this land. So God is so good. And the other reason I tell you this is because I recognize that genealogies might be some of the most boring parts of the Bible for most people. But genealogies show us something really special. It shows us how God interacts with families over time. So when we think back to who the Hittites come from, they come from Ham, the son of Noah. And that's the son that Noah curses. If you can think back to the story of Noah, after the flood is over, Noah gets drunk and his sons find him drunk and naked. Ham does something. We don't really know what. We have a lot of theories, but we don't really know for sure. What we know is that, not God, but Noah curses Ham. It causes pain and division in Noah's family. But what we see now is that God takes this dysfunctional family and he reintroduces it to his story woven through time when he takes Abraham's dysfunctional family and brings them together. Genealogies show us how God is weaving his story through families. And so I want it to be a sense of, of hope for us this morning that no matter where you are, no matter what you feel like you've done, or maybe you think you're dysfunctional, you think that your family's dysfunctional, there's still hope because God consistently uses imperfect people. He uses broken people. He uses dysfunctional families to weave his story throughout history. So take heart, no matter where you come from today, no matter what's in your past or what's in your history, God wants you and God's doing something with you because God is so good. So I'm gonna invite you to jump, in with, jump into Genesis chapter 23 with me this morning. You can use your Bible, you can use your Bible app, whatever you decide to do. We're also gonna put it on the screen for you this morning. So in case you are watching the service from your phone, and that's where you usually get your scripture, we're gonna put the scripture on the screen for you this morning. So Genesis chapter 23, starting here at verse one. Here we go. Sarah lived to be 127 years old. She died a Kirath. Arba, that is Hebron, in the land of Canaan. And Abram went to mourn for Sarah and to weep over her. And we're going to pause there for a second. Remember that Abraham is alone at the beginning of this chapter. If we go back to last week and we think about the story that we were watching last week or we were listening to last week, we know that after the sacrifice of Isaac, although Abraham said, we will come back to you to his servants, only Abraham comes back. Isaac does not come back with Abraham. And so what we see here is that Abraham settles in a place called Beersheba. Sarah is in a different place. And Isaac, we're going to learn next week, has been living in a place called Beer Laroi. Now, that name might sound familiar to you, Beer Laroi. It means the God who sees me. So if I say the God who sees me, does that sound familiar? Does it sound familiar if I say there was a woman who ran away into the desert, came to a well, encountered God, and she said, I see the God who sees me. And so she named the well Bir Lahai Roy. Hagar, when she was mistreated by Sarah, ran away. 
And she named this place the God who sees me. And if you remember, last week we talked about how there's this theme of being seen and seeing God throughout the story. Once again, we see that theme is not over. Isaac has actually run away and is living in a place called the God who sees me alone, this place that Hagar named. Now, last week I talked a little bit about Midrash, and I, wanted, I didn't explain what that was. Midrash is, are these, these Hebrew and Jewish commentaries on Scripture. And some of them date all the way back to the second century. And we can look at these to get an idea of what were Jewish rabbis teaching about these stories just after the days of Jesus. And so we have some old midrashes that will tell us that um, Isaac lost his faith in God. Through that whole experience of the sacrifice, he lost his faith in God. We have some other midrashes that tell us that he never lost his faith in God, but Isaac lost his faith in Abraham and he could not return with him. And so what we, we kind of see is there's a relational cost here. Isaac, in, in, his, in his following of God, will be restored at some point in the future. We're gonna see that he has a relationship with God too. But at least right now, whether it's Abraham or God, there's a relational cost to what happened in the previous chapter. God saved thousands and probably hundreds of thousands of children from child sacrifice, but that came at a cost as well. There's other Jewish midrashes that actually suggest that the reason Sarah died is because she got word about what Abraham had tried to do. What God, God called Abraham to do was sacrifice their one and only son they've been waiting for. And when she gets word, she dies. So, you know, it takes a long time for word to travel in those days too. So eventually Abraham gets the word that his wife dies. His wife is in one place. His son is in one place. He is living in another place. He gets word his wife dies, and he travels back to Hebron, Canaan, where they had been living before to find his wife. Verse 3. Then Abraham rose from beside his dead wife and spoke to the Hittites. He said, I am an alien and a stranger among you. Sell me some property for a burial site here so I can bury my dead. You know, Abraham is, Abraham is mourning his wife's death, which means that he probably shaved his head, probably shaved his beard. He covered himself in ashes and sackcloth. This was the custom of the day. And, and he would have stayed by his wife's side mourning her death for days and days and weeks and maybe even longer. But at some point in that mourning process, Abraham realizes he needs to find a place to bury his wife. He needs a tomb. But Abraham is a foreigner in this land. Remember, this is the land he's promised, but it's, it's not his land yet. He's a foreigner in this land. So he doesn't have any rights. He doesn't have any power. He kind of has to throw himself on the mercy of these strangers, these Hittites. And so for a moment, I want you to put yourself in Abraham's position. I want you to imagine that you're not a citizen of this country and that you have to do something official, like bury someone, that you have to buy property, that you have to get a deed for it. It's not easy to do when you don't have proper documentation. This is the place that Abraham finds himself in right now. And so he goes to the Hittites and he kind of throws himself at their mercy. Verse five, the Hittites replied to Abraham, sir, listen to us. You're a mighty prince among us. Bury your dead in the choicest of our tombs. None of us will refuse you his tomb for burying your dead. So the Hittites respond graciously 
They see that Abraham is hurting. They see that he's in pain. They see that he is mourning his wife. Again, his appearance is probably drastically different right now because he's in mourning. And they want to help him. They respond so graciously. I mean, this is the area where Abraham had lived. They've heard his name. They know who he is. He's like a prince among them. And so they say, hey, don't even worry about it. You can have any one of our tombs you want. Just go and bury your dead. We see that you're in pain. And, and this is gracious. We should pay attention. That's very gracious. But think about this too. This doesn't give Abraham any control or any peace of mind over the longevity of where Sarah's final resting place will be. Because what if they change their mind in a week or 10 years or 20 years? And what if there's some other family member that they want to put in that tomb? Well, it's not his tomb, so he'll have no say over that. So there's no sense of control or peace of mind over what happens. He really wants to purchase this. So let's pick it up in verse 7. Then Abraham rose and bowed down before the people of the land, the Hittites. He said to them, if you're willing to let me bury my dead, then listen to me and intercede with Ephron, son of Zohar, on my behalf, so he will sell me the cave of Machpelah, which belongs to him and is at the end of his field. Ask him to sell it to me for the full price as a burial site among you. So now we find out that Abraham approaches these people at the city gate. We'll find that out in the next verse. That's not a weird thing. To you, that might sound like a weird thing. But in ancient times, all of the major decisions were made at the city gate. And you might remember back to the time where um, these two angels came into a city called Sodom, and there was a guy named Lot that met them at the city gate. And we said one of the reasons he might have been there is because he was involved in civic affairs. This is where men gathered to make political and civic decisions. And I do say men because at this time, women would not have gathered. If you were a man who had a son who took over your family business, that released you to now go be a part of one of the elders of the city. So you were welcomed at the city gates, and so you made political decisions, civic decisions. If there was disagreements between people in the city, they brought those disagreements here, and you helped them solve it. You thought about it. And so this is where Abraham goes. He goes to the city gates, and he talks to the Hittites, and he throws himself on their mercy, he brings his request. And Abraham has kind of picked out. He knows the land. Remember, he lived here. He knows the land well. And he has this perfect, perfect place in his mind where he wants Sarah to go. It's this tomb on this special plot of land. And he knows the owner is this guy named Ephron. He probably has never met Ephron. He probably has no idea who Ephron is. But he goes to the city gates and says, Will you guys just intercede on my behalf? Talk to Ephron and just tell him to sell me the land. What he doesn't realize is that Ephron is sitting there among them, and he hears the request. Verse 10, Ephron the Hittite was sitting among his people, and he replied to Abraham in the hearing of all the Hittites who had come to the city gate. No, my Lord, he said, listen to me. I give you the field, and I give you the cave that is in it. I give it to you in the presence of my people. Bury your dead. So Ephron responds generously too. This is very generous. I just want you to think about this. Think about you having purchased a burial plot for someone in your family. And then somebody that you have heard of but don't really know, someone who's not even a citizen, comes up and asks you for that plot, and you say, take it. It's all good. Just take it. This is a very gracious response. But once again, he doesn't offer to sell it. So now Abraham has permission to put his wife in this very special place he's picked out. But again, he doesn't have control over it for the future. So Abraham 
engages in this sort of bartering, which is a very common practice in the Middle East, okay? So this isn't an uncommon thing. It's, it's kind of this back-and-forth conversation we find. In verse 12, we'll pick it up. Again, Abraham bowed down before the people of the land, and he said to Ephron in their hearing, Listen to me, if you will. I will pay the price of the field. Accept it from me so I can bury my dead there. Ephron answered Abraham, Listen to me, my lord. The land is worth 400 shekels of silver, but what is that between you and me? Bury your dead. Abraham agrees to Ephron's terms and weighed out for him the price he had named in the hearing of the Hittites, 400 shekels of silver, according to the weight current among the merchant. Abraham insists on buying the land. And the whole interchange is really sort of funny if you think about it. He comes to them and says, please, let me buy some land so I can bury my wife. And they say, no, 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 your money is no good here. You, you are a prince among us. You can just bury them wherever you want. Well, I picked a special place, and it's really important to me. I want the special place. Oh, well, your money is no good. You just have the special place. No, no, I really want to buy the special place. I'm willing to pay full price. How much is the land worth? And what does he say? He says the land is worth 400 shekels of silver, which to you, you're like, hey, 400 shekels. But I'm telling you, that's like saying it's worth a bazillion dollars. Okay, like, let's put it in perspective. Do you remember when um, Abraham goes and meets a king named Abimelech, and he lies about who his wife is, and Abimelech marries his wife, and then in a dream, God comes to him and says, you're a dead man, because you, you married someone who was already married. And so in this process that Abimelech goes through to kind of make it right, one of the things is, according to ancient customs, is you can't just say sorry, you have to add something to it in order to make it okay. And so Abimelech, pays Sarah. He pays her a thousand pieces of silver. And so I just want you to think for a second, we have a king in charge of a kingdom who's extremely wealthy, and to make his conscience clear, to make himself right with the Lord God Almighty who has come to him in a dream and said he's a dead man, he is willing to pay a thousand shekels of silver. What's a king's ransom? What is, what does it take to clear his conscience? A thousand shekels of silver. That's a lot, a lot of silver. And so then we have this guy who says, oh, 400. My, my land's worth 400. And he probably expected some kind of bartering exchange. Oh, 400, I'll, I'll give you two. And they would meet somewhere in the middle, right? That doesn't happen. Abraham's like, done. Pay you out. Done. Pick it up in verse 17. So Ephron's field in Machpelah near Mamre, both the field and the cave in it, and all the trees within the borders of the field was deeded to Abraham as his property in the presence of all the Hittites who had come to the city gate. Afterward, Abraham buried his wife Sarah in the cave in the field of Machpelah near Mamre, which is at Hebron, in the land of Canaan. So the field and the cave in it were deeded to Abraham by the Hittites as a burial site. And that brings us to the end of our chapter this morning. And here's, I'm going to say this before we get into our growth section. It's important that we understand what this land is. This is where God came in three persons and met with Abraham and ate with him. This is the same land where Sarah was in the tent and she heard God promise that she would have a child. And she laughed. 
This is the same land where Abraham walked with God as he interceded on behalf of Sodom, saying, God, if there's just 10 people, would you destroy the city? This is the same place where he's raised his children. This is the same place where he stood high on a hill overlooking Sodom and the plain and saw the smoke rising into the air. It's this place. This is home. This has always been home. And now he has a deed. He owns property. Abraham no longer has to be a nomad. He doesn't have to travel. He has a home for the first time since he left Ur. We're going to jump into our growth area this morning. And if you are with us for the first time since we're online this morning, uh, what we've done in this series is divide our sermons up into three sections. Go, grow, and gospel. And in the go section, we just read through the chapter together as a community. In the grow section, we say, okay, what from this chapter that we read should be the area we need to grow in as a community? And then the gospel section, we say, okay, where's the gospel in this? Where's the good news in this? Where is the good news in the story we read this morning? Because we don't believe that the gospel is only present in a few books at the beginning of the New Testament. We believe the gospel is present anywhere we pick up the Bible. God has been working in this the whole time. This morning, my heart tells me that the growth area that we need to talk about is mourning. And I recognize that mourning might make you uncomfortable. It makes me uncomfortable. Um, Most of you, if you've traveled with our church for some time, you will have known that my story includes losing a couple of children. Mourning is not something that I like. It's not something that I've been comfortable with. It's something that I tried to avoid even after those things, but it is a part of life. And it's okay for us to be uncomfortable. Our, our greatest growth does not come from places of comfort. It comes from places of discomfort. At the start of our chapter this morning, we read that Abraham lost his wife. Sarah has died. He's in a place of mourning. He feels pain. He feels sorrow. And the scriptures have a word for this, and the word is lament. Lament is an expression of pain and sorrow. It's when you put pain and sorrow to words. It's called a lamentation. And our Old Testament actually contains a book called Lamentations. It's a whole book of lamenting. It's a whole book of putting pain and sorrow and mourning to words. It's written by the prophet Jeremiah. And Jeremiah wrote two books. He wrote the book of Jeremiah, which was a prediction that the city of Jerusalem was going to fall. And then he wrote Lamentations, which is really a, a funeral song for the city of Jerusalem. The book of Lamentations says some things like this. Listen to this verse. Bitterly she weeps at night, Tears are on her cheeks. Among all her lovers, there is no one to comfort her. All her friends have betrayed her. They have become her enemies. Have you ever felt so alone that you didn't feel like even your friends cared? Have you ever felt so alone that while you were alone, you just cried, you just wept, the tears came from your face? So alone that the people that you once called friend feel more like enemies than friends. Have you ever felt that kind of alone? Someone else has too. You're not alone in that. Look at this next one from chapter two. It says, look, Lord, and consider whom have you ever treated like this? Should women eat their offspring? 
the children that they have cared for? Should priest and prophet be killed in the sanctuary of the Lord? You'd probably never say it out loud, but have you ever felt like, like Job? You ever heard somebody even comment on someone else's situation and say, boy, that's like Job. You ever not say it out loud, but you think in your head and you go, ah, God's never treated anybody as bad as this. God, why are you doing this to me? You ever been so hungry that you didn't know where your next meal was coming from? That you didn't know how you were gonna feed your, your kids? In the world we live in where people blow up mosques and they shoot up churches, have you ever wondered how God could possibly let our houses of worship become a shooting gallery? Has it ever crossed your mind? Those are the things deep in your mind and deep in your spirit that are laments. It's pain given to words. It's the questions that we don't seem to have an answer to. Questions that sound so deep and so dark and so sacrilegious that we would never dare say them aloud. But I'm telling you, there is place for that. And here's my call for growth for us as a church, as a community, but as a worldwide church too, is that we don't often do a good job of letting people lament. We don't do a good job of letting them mourn or letting them suffer because we bought into this lie somewhere along the way that if you believe in God, then you should be happy. If you believe in God, then you should have this joy that's buried so deep down that you're just happy all the time. And if you're not happy, then pull yourself up by your bootstraps. You aren't allowed to be overwhelmed. You aren't allowed to be depressed. You aren't allowed to be anxious. And yeah, you know what? Jesus speaks to these things. He doesn't want us to live in a place of anxiety and fear. That's true. It's not good for us to stay there. It's not good for our bodies. It's not good for our spirits. God knows that. But even King David, who wrote most of the Psalms, you know, the songs that we sing are songs because their words come from so many of the Psalms that King David wrote. And though he wrote these incredible songs about praising God, about finding God in the darkness, he wrote so many about being in a dark place. He's the same person that wrote, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? David has been in these low places. He has been in a place of lament. He has suffered, but God didn't leave him there. Part of what he learns through the Psalms is that God has been with him the whole time. The same person that writes, my God, why have you forsaken me, is the person that writes, you've been my God since I was born. Jeremiah learns something very similar. He writes Lamentations, and I read you a lament from chapter 1. I read you one from chapter 2. Hear part of this one from chapter 3. He says this, Because of the Lord's great love, we are not consumed. For his compassions never fail. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. I say to myself, the Lord is my portion, therefore I will wait for him. The Lord is good to those whose hope is in him, to the one who seeks him. It is good to wait quietly for the salvation of the Lord. I want our faith community to actively and intentionally work against the lie that you can't lament. We're in a season right now in our world where there's a lot of people who need to lament. And if the answer that the church gives them is pull yourself up by your bootstraps or you shouldn't feel that way because you believe in God, then we're not offering them good news. And our job, our role as the church is to offer good news. So we need to work against 
that idea that just because you believe in God doesn't mean that you can lament. I want us to work against the uncomfortability that we have of people who are in mourning, who are suffering, who are in pain. I want us to stop pretending that we have every single answer out there and that we know what the right thing to say is in any given situation. We don't always have the right thing to say. We don't always know what's right. And guess what? God doesn't call us to. In fact, God says sometimes when you pray, you're not even going to have words to tell me what's going on. And so my Holy Spirit is going to intercede on your behalf, and he will groan for you. When words aren't enough and you don't know what to say, the Spirit will groan on your behalf. God doesn't call us to have the right answer all the time. Abraham came from a city called Ur. This is all the way back, almost 12 chapters ago. He came from this place called Ur. This is where he grew up, and Ur was this massive metropolis of the city. It was like growing up in New York City or Los Angeles or something like that. It had some of the greatest leaps forward in technology and societal developments. It was literally a place that had all the answers. You had a question, they'd fix it. You want to do something, they'd do it. And yet, God didn't call him to stay there. God called him out of this metropolis, out of this place of having all the answers, into a desert to wander as God prepared the promised land for him. God called him to a nomadic life. God called him to a life of asking questions outside of all of the busyness that existed in this place that he grew up. Friends, we, whether we want to or not, are being called out of the busyness right now. Some of us can no longer be busy. Some of us who have put our faith and our trust in a whole bunch of stuff that should never have had it, it's broken now. Our faith isn't in that anymore. God has been calling us from the beginning and he's calling us even now here and today to a life of trust and dependence. And that's not some sort of trite answer. It's not some sort of catch-all. Hey, we're called to a life of dependence and trust. So don't think about this or don't worry about this. I'm not saying that. This is just true. It's just simple truth. God is calling us to dependence and trust. And when we are struggling with dependence on trust, that's where the community of God comes in. That's where we are the shoulder that someone else can lean on. That's where we can lift them up. We can care for them because we are called not to have the answers, but to bear one another's burdens. We are called to listen to one another, to love one another, to to pray with one another. And that is what we need to do now more than ever is to pray with one another, to pray for one another, to bear one another's burdens. You know, life doesn't stop just because it feels like life stops. Life is still going. People are still hurting. People are still sick. People still have needs. And now all of those things get that much deeper. You don't need the answer to those things. You don't need to fix every single problem in the world, but God is calling you to the people that are next door to you. Now, it's your literal neighbor that God is calling you to. You don't have to ask the question, who is my neighbor, and fight with yourself about the answer. The question right now, as you're in quarantine mode, is that your neighbor is the person who lives next door to you. How can you love your neighbor and be with them as they walk through some of the scariest times that they may have ever gone through right now? The Apostle Paul says it this way in Corinthians. He says, there should be no division in the body but that its parts should have equal concern for each other. If one part suffers, 
every part suffers with it. If one part is honored, every part rejoices with it. We are in a season where we're doing both. We have a foot in a world of suffering, and we have a foot in a world of joy. We're split between two places. We live in a world where we seem to think that our value is based on what we can produce. And now, your job is taken away. And now you feel like you can't produce. And now you feel like you have no value. And you can sit in a place where you feel like you have no value and you can't produce. Or you can sit in a place where you go, you know what, I get to spend time with my family. I get to go outside. I get to breathe in fresh air. And I'm not saying that you have to stay in this place. I'm not saying there's no room for this. I'm saying we need to be a people who, who have embraced the fact that we live in both places right now. And there might be a time that you are feeling joyful that you can pour into somebody who's suffering. And there might be a time that you are suffering that you need to call someone who is joyful. We need to support and love one another through everything that's going on right now as we live in this world of joy and suffering. In a spirit of dependence and trust, let us rejoice together and let us lament together. We're gonna move into our gospel section to finish out our teaching time this morning. There's this story from the gospel of John that I've shared before, and I wanna to continue to share it with you. If you've been with us over the last year or so that I've been here, I've probably shared this at least two times. But it is such a beautiful and incredible story that it bears repeating again and again. And as we talk about mourning and lament this morning, think back to a recent funeral that I did and I shared this story at that funeral. And it seems appropriate that in light of the chapter that we just read where Abraham loses his wife, that we think about this story again. We think about loss and mourning and needing a shoulder to cry on. There's this story in John chapter 11 where, where Jesus is with his disciples. And he gets word, a messenger comes to him, and they say, your friend Lazarus is sick. And Lazarus is a friend. He's got two sisters, Mary and Martha, and they are Jesus' friends as well. And they're the kind of friends that you call family. You know what I mean. You have people that you're so close with, that you love so much, that you think of them more as family than you do as friends. This is the kind of friend that Lazarus, Mary, and Martha are to Jesus. And the disciples know this. And so when this messenger comes and says, your friend Lazarus is sick, it must be serious because who sends a messenger if it's not serious? And the disciples look at Jesus and they say, okay, is it time for us? To, should we go? Should we go? And Jesus says, no, no, because this isn't going to end in death. We don't need to go to Lazarus yet. And in fact, Jesus waits for two days to ever even move. And on the second day, he tells his disciples, okay, it's time for us to go now. Now we should go. Let's go to Lazarus. But Jesus knows something the disciples don't already. He knows that Lazarus has died. And even as the disciples question him, he even tells them, Lazarus is dead, and it is good that he is, because I'm going to do something that is going to help even the most skeptical one of you believe. By the time they get to Lazarus' house, Lazarus has been dead for four days. As Jesus gets to the house, he's greeted by Lazarus' family, his two sisters, Mary and Martha. 
And Mary and Martha come to him at different moments, but they say identical statements. Jesus, if you would have been here, this wouldn't have happened. If you'd have been here, he wouldn't be dead. They're in pain and they're upset. And Jesus looks at Martha and says, you're so focused on death. Don't you realize that I'm life? I am true life. If only you believe in me, if only a person believes in me, they will never die. I am true life. Martha, do you believe? And Martha looks at Jesus and says, yeah, I, I do believe. I do believe that you are. And, and he continues through the household towards the tomb and he encounters Mary and Mary says the same thing. If you were here, this wouldn't have happened. And she collapses and like a sobbing, angry sad heap at Jesus' feet. And it's in this moment that we see Jesus in a way that we've never seen him before. It's in this moment in verse 35, the shortest verse in the entire Bible, that we encounter Jesus being something incredible. It's in this moment that it all hits him, the loss of his friend, the pain of Martha, the pain of Mary, and Jesus cries. Jesus wept. He mourned. He felt the sort of pain and the sort of loss that we all feel. Jesus, fully God and fully man, stood in two worlds. He straddled a line, and on this hand, he cried. He felt sorrow. He felt pain. And on this hand, he was doing something already in his head that was going to change everything. And so Jesus continues on through the household. He gets to the tomb. He commands people to open the tomb. And they fight him. They say, I don't want to open the tomb. And he says, open the tomb. And it's into darkness. It's into the darkness of death itself that Jesus shouts, Lazarus, come out. And much to the surprise of everyone who's gathered, including his disciples, Lazarus walks out of the tomb. He walks out. I mean, Jesus wasn't exaggerating. He wasn't using sarcasm. He wasn't kidding when he said to Martha, I am the true life. I am the key to never dying. You can have eternal life if you just believe in me. Jesus waited for the right time, for the right moment, to make sure that Lazarus was actually dead so that he could call Lazarus out of death itself. And you and I are in a season right now that there are moments that it is going to feel like death. You might have lost your job. You might be laid off. You might be closing your business. You might not know how you're going to pay your next month's rent. And at the same time, into that death is shouted life, and you feel joyful because you're seeing your family more, because suddenly you're not as busy, because you're watching the community come together and meet people's needs. You're watching the church step up and feed lots and lots of family in their time of need. You're in these this two worlds where it feels like life, but Jesus is pushing forward and he is shouting life into the death that it feels like exists in the world. And so into darkness, Jesus brings light. Into death, he brings life. And it's the same with us this morning. We have to remember that even in our worst moments, even in the moments that feel darkest and feel the most painful, that Jesus is the only offer of true life that is on the table. That we are called to live in this place of trust and dependence. It's okay for us to be upset and to be anxious and to be mourning, but to remember that that's not a place we live. That's a stop on the train, but it's not the way the destination. The destination is to trust. Just like Jesus took a family that had walked away 
and brought them back with a family who was nearly equally dysfunctional, I want you to know that Jesus is taking every single thing that feels like life and he's using it for his good. And he's taking every single thing that feels like death and he is using it for his good. Right now, maybe what you need to do is lament. We will lament with you. Right now, maybe what you need to do is rejoice. And we will rejoice with you. But just remember that the good news is that death does not have the final word. As much pain and as much suffering as you may feel here and now today, that battle is won. It is over. And Jesus is king. Let's pray together. Hi, this is Pastor Nick. Thanks for listening. I hope something that you heard today was very helpful. If you want to connect with us further, feel free to check us out on Facebook, Instagram, or our website, kanoichurch.org. Sure, I'm glad we're in this together.